Mamita Mija. Connection Podcast Network. Welcome to the newest edition of JT's Mailbag, year two, here in our 13th episode. And thank you for checking out everything the North South Connection Podcast Network has to offer. Appreciate it all. I'd also appreciate if you pop over to one of your podcatcher apps, preferably Apple Podcasts, and take a moment and just leave a little rating, leave a little review. Kind of say it often, It'd be cool. It helps us just gain some traction. Continue to deliver these uh, shows that I'm super proud of that we bring to you on this network with the wide variety of hosts that do it. Like me and Aaron George bring you now entering the Royal Rumble. Every other Monday, we're going through every single Royal Rumble participant to ever enter the Royal Rumble match. So uh, we started in 1988 with the first guy, Bret Hart, did all of his Rumble appearances. Then we did the second guy, then the third guy. Uh, So we're creeping along now, and uh, we've really uh, continued to pump through a large number of competitors and uh, I really enjoy doing that show. It's a lot of fun digging into those things. Uh, as well as No Holds Bar that Aaron and I also do every other Saturday. Uh, a lot of list-based and, and other kind of activities like that. So we're currently, uh, once a month, ranking the greatest WWE pay-per-view competitors of each month. So uh, most recent one would have been uh, October, all the October pay-per-view wrestlers. And we'll be doing Survivor Series mainly soon for November. And then also we started our newest project. So every uh, every two weeks what we do, or I should say once a month, uh, alternating with that project, is we are ranking every single WWF World Heavyweight title change in history. So we started with Bruno winning the belt from Buddy Rogers. We have our metrics and ranking system, and we go through and discuss each of the matches and also then rank them and score them. Our most recent episode is one I'm super proud of, and Aaron and I have done a lot of audio together. But I really think it's actually maybe our best ever, uh, where we discussed Hulk Hogan versus the Iron Sheik and uh, Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant on the main event. So I really, really dug that episode. We had a lot of fun digging into it. Uh, it's a cool concept, like uh, pretty much everything we do on that show. All right, let's start with a doozy from Ryan Everett. And I should say these questions are pulled in on our Place to Be Facebook group page. I usually put a thread up there, but a week before I'm going to do this gather them and store them in my sack. Uh, also, you can reach out to me elsewhere on our other Facebook pages. Uh, no longer on Twitter. I uh, decided to take a break because it's been way too much time uh, for such negativity out there. So taking a break from Twitter. If you need me, you can reach out to me on the North South Connection Facebook page or join that Place to Be group page uh, if you need to uh, get in touch. All right. Ryan Everett. Starcade 1999 goes the same. Goldberg kicks Bret Hart's head off, gets cut in October 2000, but through 2001 he takes it easy, goes to the doctor, and he gets cleared to wrestle. Let's say him and Vince make up in early 2002. He comes in right around the original brand split and agrees to come back and wrestle a semi-regular schedule, similar to Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. For two years, how would you book him? Quite the loaded question, Ryan. Uh, It's an interesting one, right? Because you naturally would think you could do something with Bret and Sean. But Sean would have not even been back yet at this point, right? So you're not going to go there yet. And even when you do, he's going to come back with a hero's tale. So you kind of have a bit of a conundrum. Now, you do have the two shows. 
So one answer could be to put Bret Hart on SmackDown, and then they don't cross paths right away, and you kind of hint at them maybe at some point crossing paths if the brands happen to coincide that way. I think you have to do something with him and Vince. So Vince uh, owns SmackDown anyway, so it's kind of a natural fit. So maybe, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a way to go about it where I don't want to say he signs them, but he kinda, it kind of gets foisted on him. Uh, somehow, maybe it's like a mystery deal where The Rock brings him in and signs him, whatever it is, he ends up on SmackDown with Vince, and you kind of have that natural uh, antagonistic feud going on while Vince is in charge. And Brett fits in well on SmackDown, because if you think about it, right, I mean, the SmackDown 6 is the most famous uh, part, obviously, of 2002. So Vince comes off uh, WrestleMania 18. He's got the match with... uh, so he had Flair at the Rumble. And then he's not really feuding too much with anyone, I guess, in the early days of SmackDown. I mean, he kind of is still with Hogan, I guess. They're starting to set that up for the next year. But, uh, you know, there's not a ton else going on in the world of McMahon uh, as far as major feuds. So I think you pretty much go right into him and Brett as a, as a feud where he's kind of um, antagonistic to Brett. He's messing with Brett. Yeah. Uh, you just did the co-owner thing with Flair, so like I don't think you can do it where Brett's like a mystery co-owner or co-GM or something. Um, so you're not going to go that route. But I, I think the end game is to get him there. At least my end game would be to get him there through the SmackDown Six era, so he can have matches. Now, if you have limited matches, right, you could have a match with him and, and Kurt Angle. That's a dream match we never got. A match with him and Eddie Guerrero in late '02 would be awesome. If you're confident enough in Brett's health, and you're telling me he's a full clean bill of health, you got to do Bret Hart, Brock Lesnar, right? I mean, that would be a ton of fun as well. Uh, if you look at WrestleMania 19, you kind of feel like you got Hogan Vince there, but man, do you, do you hold off on Brett Vince at that show? And how do you do so? How do you continue to keep them apart? And now here comes Sean into the mix as well. So now you're keeping them apart. It's just so hard when you look at those guys, because how do you keep... How do you keep Brett and Sean from not having a feud? But you're going to have Sean be a face in his return. He's not going to come back as a heel. So I guess you have maybe have them reconcile and clear the air. It sounds it seems like such a missed opportunity, but I don't know how else you do it. Um, because, again, I, I think at least for the first year, you're not going to turn Sean. Uh, and, and given all his, you know, <laughs> believe it or not, the religious stuff and all that, like it seems like he never was interested in going heel again in that second run, really. So I, unless you can convince him... That turning heel sometime in 03 for a big money match with Brett makes sense. I don't see him probably doing it. Uh, so that leaves us Brett and Vince. There's a glaring hole at SummerSlam 03 where Vince is kind of tied up in the angle Brock stuff. So you could do Brett Vince at SummerSlam or just save it for WrestleMania 20. I mean, Vince doesn't wrestle there. He purposely kind of steps back because it was like 20th anniversary. They wanted to put the young guys over. Um, but you could have, you know, if you're doing a two year run for Brett. You could cap it with him beating Vince at WrestleMania 20 uh, to pay things off there. So I, I think that's probably the route they go. Um, now, another route you could go is take... I guess you got to have Benoit and Triple H's run. So you could pull Sean out of that triple threat and do Brett Sean there in his final match as well. But I think Brett Vince is a more cathartic one. So, And if you really put a two-year plan in motion where... They're at each other's throats for two years, but Vince just keeps dodging them and, and throws different smoke at them and, 
you know, maybe it's 03 where Brett fights Brock, right? Where Vince, when Brock turns heel, Vince throws him at him. And he just kind of keeps throwing different things in his path for a, for a while. And Brett finally gets his shot. You know, he beats someone somewhere along the line and earns that match with Vince at WrestleMania 20. Uh, and wins in MSG, right? One of his most successful buildings. Has a classic match with Vince and then retires at 20. And maybe from there, he's just kind of here and there. But... Uh, but it, it's a cool thought because, again, I think him and Angle alone like would be a ton of fun in O2 sometime. And uh, or him, got him tagging with Rey Mysterio on a tag match on SmackDown. Like, there's so many things you can do with him uh, in the SmackDown Six period in late O2, as you can hear uh, a lot about from Jake Williams on the Ruthless Aggressive podcast that comes out every other Tuesday. He's got a different uh, guest every episode, and right now he is cruising toward Survivor Series O2. So maybe Brett's uh, involved there somewhere as well. I, I think if you can find him a partner that works too. You could stick them as part of that big tag mix, right? Because you have the world's greatest, uh, well, not yet, but you have Angle and Benoit, you have the Guerreros, Edge and Ray. There's got to be someone on that roster at that point that you stick with Brett maybe and, and have him working in a tag. You could do that too. But again, it depends how limited you're keeping his schedule. So maybe he's not at every show, but he's at some. So lots of cool places to work Brett in when you think of the, the myriad of guys that were around in the promotion at that time. All right, really good question, Ryan. Thank you. Kevin Tucker asks, do you do the chants we always hear on TV when you attend your live shows? Such as what? Holy shit, and this is awesome. I'm not a big chanter, Kevin. I'm more of like a clapper, high-fiver. Uh, you might you might get me on a this is awesome here and there if, if there's something that really warrants it. Uh, I, I don't, again, it's not. I don't disapprove of the chants. I'm just not a chant guy. I'm more of a clap and stomp and uh, fist pump type of guy. So... That's that. Let's see here. Who is the worst owner in sports and why is it Daniel Snyder? That's from our buddy and big WFT football fan, Scott Shiflett. And I, I mean, I, I probably just Snyder, I guess. Like he's, he's probably the worst when you consider not just the on the field product, but just all the off the field bullshit that comes with him uh, and just constantly in a mess. And him bringing in a you know kind of well-respected head coach and Ron Rivera helped because Rivera is such a steadying force on the field and it, it sh- you know shades some of that at least when you're looking at the product whereas for many years the product was such a dumpster fire that even right now while they're struggling it's still like Rivera and no one's really going to take shots at him or shit on him um Snyder obviously has needed to go for a while you know one of my longtime least favorite was George Shin who destroyed the Charlotte Hornets and eventually New Orleans Hornets until they traded him just completely destroyed that city for basketball Charlotte and it's still i mean they still show up you know for that team but it was when you look at what they had the magic in the 90s and the way they captured like that whole era of uh, childhood fans and grandmama and Muggsy Bogues and Zoe and just kept selling guys off because he was cheap just a terrible owner uh you know, at some point, there's enough empirical evidence that Woody Johnson is a, is a should, should probably go. My longtime dream has been Mark Cuban buying the Jets, but I don't, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, probably. Uh, it's Snyder. I mean, it's it's got to be Snyder, right? I mean, there's, there's other ones, Paul Brown and guys like that that you hear about, but I think Snyder's clearly, when you just factor everything in. I mean, the one positive is he's never shied away from paying players and spending money, which to me... Th- that that's even more egregious when you get the cheap owners, right? Like the pole ads and uh, Minnesota forever. And even right today to like Hal Steinbrenner, you know, managing to the, the budget and, you know, the biggest 
one of the biggest tricks these owners are played has been to convince fans that we should care about tax dollars and salary caps and spending money on players and this and that. It's, it's such a fiasco and a farce. I mean, the players generate tons of money. Uh, they bring in shitloads of revenue. It should be pumped back into the team and not just in the pockets. And you're delusional if you think otherwise. On PTB's Vintage Vault Refresh, and that's, of course, every other Monday on the Place of the Nation Wrestling Feed, myself and Scott Criscolo just wrapped up our uh, trek back through the 80s and early 90s, kind of Hulkamania era. We did every pay-per-view, science event, and house show from January 85 until November 92. Uh, and now we're rebooting. We're heading into 2007, coming soon. You occasionally made note of the sharp decline of Demolition after losing the tag team titles at SummerSlam 90. Within months, they went from being a top act to non-entities by late 90, early 91. My question, why do you think Demolition's decline is so swift? Was it simply the arrival of the Road Warriors? Was it the departure of Axe? A combination of factors? Furthermore, do you think it was a mistake to disband the Demolition team of Smash and Crush? The tag division went to shit with Demolition, the Heart Foundation, and eventually the Rockers all being taken out of the picture. Should they have been kept around and could have acts have been kept as a manager instead of Mr. Fuji? That is from my good friend, Jared Robert. Thanks for the question, Jared. I could talk Demolition all day. I think it's a combination of factors. It's kind of all the different things you mentioned. Um... You know, I think the Road Warriors coming in and kind of being the fresh coat of paint, no pun intended, on the tag division and kind of out-demolitioning demolition, I think that was a blow. And honestly, because you could see here and say if the Road Warriors come in in 89, I, I don't think it has the same effect, right? Because demolition is peak of their power. So I don't think you can pin it solely on the Road Warriors. But it was clear that once demolition beat the Colossal Connection and peaked at WrestleMania 6, um, they were still over for a little bit after that, right? It's not like they immediately went off the cliff in April. Uh, but you could tell with the Har Foundation as a top face team, and then the Road Warriors coming in, the Rockers on the on the docket still. Like one of these teams had to turn, and I would argue it's actually the heel turn that kills them, because even when they were at their most heelish, they were still beloved. Like they got cheers at WrestleMania Four and they beat Strike Force. They were clearly getting cheered at Survivor Series '88 before they finally did the turn. Even at SummerSlam '88. Uh, it's not a clear-cut face-heel thing with the Howard Foundation. So it's like, I, I think just once they turned and then started doing the parlor tricks of bringing in Crush with the three-man team, like I think that's really what started to make them feel uh, just not the same. And then once you lose that feeling of them not being the same team you were you know, in love with for all those years, uh, that's what, when you add those things together, is where it starts to fall apart for me. So I, I think... Uh, I, I think it's this confluence of two factors. I, I think the Road Warriors play a little bit of a role, but I also think um, the three-man team and turning heel was another one. I honestly think they would have been better off turning the Har Foundation heel. It, it's not like they get super over. They have the cool moment at SummerSlam, but then they barely use them, right? They feud with fucking Rhythm and Blues in the fall, and then they do nothing until they just lose to the Nasties, and not even in a feud at WrestleMania. So... I think you could have done it much better. And I know, like, we always talk about power and glory and stuff, but I would have just had the hearts win the belts as heels from Demolition, keep Demolition hot throughout the rest of the year, have the hearts then keep the belts and lose to the Road Warriors at WrestleMania 7 as heels. Like, in a, and you don't have to make them real pure heels. You could do, like, a tweener kind of heel thing where there's more heelish than Demolition and the Road Warriors, and then have them disband. You could even say that, like career or career as a team versus career as a team with the titles on the line, something like that, right? Road Warriors hearts. Um, and then if you want to get a little more life out of demolition, 
what you could do is turn them heal uh, after seven, I guess. Maybe maybe you do the deal where Axe sticks around as a manager. I think they just had too many issues, uh, so he probably wasn't going to. But maybe you keep Smash and Crush as faces. I'm, I'm not going to have the same heat. They're obviously going to dip off a little bit and have them be the first team to challenge the Road Warriors. Uh, after WrestleMania 7. So I'm basically taking the Nasty Boys title reign completely out, which, I, I mean, I think I'm fine with. I, I think it's it's a cool moment at WrestleMania 7, but they really only exist to put over the War Warriors at SummerSlam. Uh, and I think I just do that at Mania 7 instead and just have the Road Warriors Heart Foundation rematch. If you want, you could have the Hearts put uh, loose to the Rockers at WrestleMania 7 and have the Road Warriors demolition blow off there and then do Road Warriors... Uh, no, because you want the Rockers to be... Uh, whatever. I go with my original plan. I'm, I'm switching too many teams around. But my whole point is, I think it's the heel turn that crushes Demolition. So it depends on how bad you want to keep Demolition alive. Are you willing to uh, sacrifice the hearts as faces and kind of screw up that little stretch from SummerSlam to Mania just to keep Demolition's flame a little bit more alive? Which I think it would have been. Especially if you kind of slow build them in the World of Warriors. Like maybe the kind of tentative allies for a bit. But it, it all depends. Like, Axe, I mean, he's, he's argued as a shellfish, right? And not the heart issue. So, uh, I mean, maybe there's a world where he convinces them he, that he's not going to die if he wrestles and he sticks around a little bit longer. Uh, I, I don't know if you can get the crowds to buy into fit Crush as a face. Maybe if Crush was coming in, they had to go heal. Uh, either way, I, I don't think they should have been kept around after 7 unless you're going to do something that further... Uh, improves the situation. Like if you're saying, okay, take the world as it existed and just turn and keep them past seven. I, I don't think it's going to work. Like I just, they were cooks. I mean, smash honestly looked like shit. Uh, he put out, put out a bunch of weight. He was squeezed into those, uh, the dominatrix gear and crusher is a super green. So like, I, I think the writing was on the wall. I don't think they had a lot left in the tank after WrestleMania seven as a team, uh, at least as, as, constructed right i think there's ways you could have done things differently to maybe make them hang on a little bit longer but it might have just been time i mean maybe that was it right they had a, a two-year peak run as a tag team which was a decent run at that point so it's and when i say on top i mean they were on top from wrestlemania 4 to wrestlemania 6 like yes they lost the titles twice but they were on top and presented as a main event team not just a tag team champions or just a tag team they are a main event team so i think there's a lot you could have done um but there's also a world where the way it went was fine too it was just time was up for them i think the most egregious thing in the way it went is that they didn't do a full road warriors demolition blow off with the road warriors beating them in a in a main match instead they did fucked around the warrior stuff and all that you could argue uh, that that was the big miss, that we didn't get Road Warriors Demolition. And I, I think, too, that's just a consequence of this pay-per-view structure at that point, because you only have Survivor Series and the Rumble between SummerSlam and Mania, and you, you kind of can't really do it at either of those. I mean, I guess you could have had it on the undercard of the Rumble if you wanted to, but um, otherwise, Saturday Night's event is kind of your only option uh, to throw it out there, because by SummerSlam, you had to have the hearts winning the belts either way, so you couldn't do it there. All right, that was a really good question, and I appreciate it. Appreciate you all submitting those, and all you that listen to this feed, which also includes TNA Never Dies every other Tuesday. Myself, Jennifer Smith, Aaron George, going through the history of NWA TNA. We are currently into early 03. And I mean, look, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I have no interest in hearing recaps of 
TNA pay-per-views in the early days. It is far from that. It is a uh, monstrous shit show of mega proportions. It's just an hour and a half of insanity every two weeks. Uh, just We go off on these insane tangents, and it's just out of control. So if you enjoyed Mayhem, that's the show for you. Uh, also, uh, myself and Jenny team up with Matt Souza every other Thursday to talk ECW, Extreme Three-Way Dance. That is a super fun show. We are creeping through the spring of 1996. Tons of big stuff is happening in the promotion. And I encourage you, if you've never really sat down and dove into ECW, like watch along with us because it's so much fun and everything's on Peacock. The the you know Everything you need to really check out all the big stuff. We cover the TV, we cover the big shows. It, it's a ton of fun and I'm loving seeing all that really for the first time for me and living through it. Uh, what I'm not watching for the first time, though, is Beverly Hills 90210. Myself and Tim Capel and a new guest every two to three weeks are recapping that show in chronological order. So uh, we were, just dropped our eighth episode. We had Marcus Fuller on for that. Like I said, that's Fridays every two to three weeks or so. Uh, myself, Tim, and a guest on 90210. Which MCU movie was your favorite? What are you looking forward to viewing? That is Richard Cologne. Now, Richard, you know, I can't tell you what my favorite is because that would ruin Journey Through Infinity's final reveal, which is myself, Tim Capel, Scott Criscolo, and of course the host, Jennifer Smith, over on the Jenny position, Journey Through Infinity. We're going through every MCU movie, um, and it, that is, again, a, a real lot of fun. Uh, I, I'm a, a newcomer to the world of comics and comic movies and stuff like that. I just got into it uh, really just a couple years ago um, and blew through all the movies. I'm all fully caught up. I got to see the last two in the theater when they dropped, which uh, I was dying to do because, of course, after I started watching, we had the pandemic, the movie, movies all ended. Uh, so it took me, it was like a good two years for me to get to see one of these things in the theater. And I was at Black Widow on opening night, ready to go. Uh, so I'm all in. Our newest episode over on the Jenny position was Thor Ragnarok. So we dove into that. And I will tell you, that was one of my favorites. Not my favorite favorite, but one of my very favorites. I thought it was a tremendous movie. Um, so what am I looking forward to viewing? I've actually watched them all. Uh, we just haven't talked about them all. So I guess my next one would be, you know, obviously Eternals, I think will be quite good, I'm sure. I think these are all good. But I'm really looking forward to uh, Spider-Man in December. Like, I'm, I'm super pumped for that. I will be there opening night. I think it's going to be an amazing movie. With all the teases and everything else, I think they're going to deliver for sure. And this year's offerings have been very good, too. Like, I really, really enjoyed Black Widow. I thought they did a nice job giving that character a proper movie that she never got. And I thought Shang-Chi uh, definitely exceeded expectations, for sure, too. Some of the fight scenes in that movie were just uh, tremendous. So, uh, thank you, Richard. Be sure to check that out. Also, be sure to check out WWE War Wrestling Above Replacement. Me and Marcus Fuller just dropped our premiere episode uh, a couple weeks ago, and episode two would have dropped as you're listening to this as well. We are doing a sabermetric-style breakdown of every WWE pay-per-view season, which means we start uh, post-WrestleMania and go up to WrestleMania. That's considered a season. So our first season we're doing is 94-95. The first episode dove into King of the Ring 94 and SummerSlam 94. Episode 2 was Survivor Series 94 and Rumble 95. And we're going to do a lot of bit different metric-based plus-minus system to determine and stack rank every pay-per-view of all time. So if you're uh, even more of a nerd than, than uh, normal listen to these podcasts, that is extra nerdy for you. That is every other Friday on the North-South. So speaking of pay-per-views, our bud Rob Kilner says, I was watching WrestleMania 5 the other day, and I got to thinking about the Mega Powers exploding. Do you think it would have worked to have that main event match with Big Bossman and Akeem and they broke up at WrestleMania 5 and then do a title change at SummerSlam? 
Or do you have to have WrestleMania 5 end on a happy no? So, Rob, this is a good question. I think it's one that's popped up now and again, right? I think I remember Scott Keith, I think, was someone that always argued that you should have, like, there was still so much gas in the tank on Hogan Savage that dragging that out to SummerSlam would have made a lot of sense. And you could have built the whole summer around Hogan chasing. Uh, and I do think there's a lot of credence to that because Savage was so hot as a champion and he had just turned heel, like, you know, obviously weeks before Mania. So you didn't really get a full Savage heel run with the belt with Hogan chasing. And you could have done that in the summer. Now, I don't do the turn at Mania. I, I keep that on main event because it's such a big draw for that show. And you needed something big to happen coming off of the year before with Hogan Andre to keep that as a popular and, and uh, well-viewed show. I think you still do Hogan Savage at five. I think you just have Savage win or lose by DQ or something. And I know it's tough to say uh, to end the mania like that at that point, but I think Hogan was so over. I think there's a way to do it where Liz get, gets involved. Um, you know, Zeus doesn't debut too far after mania. You could have that as the big surprise at, at the end of that show. Maybe he shows up, maybe Sherry comes out and gets involved. And that's, you introduce her with Savage. Cause again, that happens pretty quick after, or, I mean, you could do the unthinkable and Savage cheats to win. But I think if Savage comes out of Mania with the belt and you still get the Hogan must pose to end the show, and then I, I don't think it hurts the Mania brand at all. Like, I don't think that had been super well established, right? Like, yes, we've kind of ended with the face standing tall every year, but that doesn't mean Hogan has to win the belt to do that. So I think you could have done that and stretched out to Mania and just done Hogan Savage, I'm um, to SummerSlam and done Hogan winning at SummerSlam give that show his first big title change uh, and then move along from there. So I think that just gives Savage a little more of a thank you run, right? Because now you're getting like an 18 month world title run half, you know, a quarter of it or a third of it as a heel. Like that could have been super cool. And you cement SummerSlam as a big time show and you don't really lose a lot. It's not like Hogan had like a dominant summer as world champion churning out classics. I mean, you would have been just as fine with Hogan kind of chasing across the, the country against Savage, but it just wasn't the style of the WF at the time, right? They were a face-based company. They preferred to have the heel chasing the face at all times as a world champion. So uh, that's that, but it's a really good question uh, for sure, Rob, and I, I appreciate it. So let me just uh, hit a couple other things here on the North-South before we start to wrap up. Cronoso is a brand new project we have going on. The newest one dropped last weekend. We have two different tracks. We have uh, the Jim Crockett WCW track, and then we have the WWE PG era. So every two weeks you get one of those. So the newest Crockett one was Starcade 84. And of course, on the WCW team, we're rotating different guests. On this one was me, Jenny, and Pete Schumacher. And then on the PG team, they have set, uh, set folks that do each of the brands. So every episode hits the Raw, the ECW, and the SmackDown from that week in 2008. Those are the pay-per-views as well. And uh, Tim Taylor is the voice of that one, kind of the narrator, and he does an awesome job uh, threading that all together. So those are really you know different concepts and ones uh, I'm interested in to see how they continue to play out and I'm excited to bring to you here on the North-South. Also want to throw out New General Mission. That's every other Wednesday. Justin Pratt and Tim Slomka going through the New Generation era of the WWF. They're in the uh, late summer of 93 right now. Uh, actually, no, I think they're mid-summer. They're headed toward King of the Ring, I believe. So uh, that's a really fun, uh, easy listen for sure. Second Print Comics, every Sunday, Mark Claire, Remso Martinez. They bring to you uh, potpourri, look at different comics topics. They are like clockwork. That drops every Sunday at 11 a.m. Uh, you know what that means? Every other Friday, Jordan Duncan, Andrew Reich, our AEW podcast, breaking down all the news and notes in the world of All Elite. And also, uh, Squared Circle, the Silver Screen, every fourth Saturday here, rotating with Noel's Bard in this mailbag. Cowboy and Crossland, 
review different movies starring wrestlers or about wrestling. The newest one is a real lot of fun. They broke down the David Arquette documentary from last year. So be sure to check that out. And finally, shout out to Ryan Gray, who is here doing uh, different WWE pay-per-view uh, previews and other uh, concepts. He reviewed the draft recently, and uh, last week uh, he previewed Cron Jewel. So he does a great job talking current WWE. And uh, also, speaking of WWE pay-per-views, Viewer's Choice comes at you late night Sunday, early morning Monday. Tim, not the Toolman Taylor, Marcus Fuller. Uh, they are probably one of the first recap shows you're going to hear on these big pay-per-view events, usually up within an hour or so when these things end. Uh, they do an amazing job to churn those out. And finally, WCW Must Die, Ryan Gray, Johnny C, talking about the final days of WCW and why it had to die. And I should, of course, mention Wrestling Warzone, myself and Chad Campbell going through the Monday Night Wars. And uh, we're a little bit of a hiatus right now just due to some life stuff going on. We will be back. Our last episode was Summer 796, so kind of a clean spot to uh, take a little hiatus. We'll be back with the new fall season very soon. Stay tuned. All right, let's see if we can squeeze one more question in here. appreciate your time, as always. All right, from my buddy, Life is God on Twitter. Uh, you're going to have to find a new way to reach out to me, buddy, because, as I mentioned earlier, I'm no longer uh, tweeting. A question for the next mailbag. Uh, at their peaks, how do you rank Kurt Angle, Chris Benoit, Chris Jericho, and Eddie Guerrero? Take into account everything, wrestling ability, mic skills, charisma, and draw as a heel face. So the one thing I'm not going to take into account is draw, uh, <laughs> buddy, because I think, um, I, I don't know. I don't know those receipts in front of me. They all were kind of on top in an era where their promotions were draws, I guess. Like, I guess if you really want to say who was the best draw, you got to say Chris Jericho at this point because of what he's done to AEW. Um, so, all right. So Jericho is a draw, but if you take that out of the picture and just go purely, uh, on, on the other metrics you mentioned, wrestling, Mike, charisma. Uh, I mean, Jericho has so much longevity, and he's climbing the ranks tremendously as one of the all-time greats overall, not just of this group. The problem is he also had that slow stretch earlier this decade, right, where, I don't know, post that awesome Jericho, smarmy, Jericho run, 08 to 10, like, you know, that run after that, after 12, I guess, pre-AEW, outside of the list of Jericho is some shaky stuff, but man, like, if you look at his resume, just from ECW to WCW to WWF, just tons and tons and tons of top-level matches and performances. I think if you're going purely by peak, like, who was the best at their peak of all these things? It's Eddie Guerrero. Like, I mean, I, I think if you had to pick one of the four, to me, that's just like, who are the top in all those metrics, regardless of careers? Who is the best across the board? Like, I think it's Guerrero. Like, I think he put together the best matches. I think he was the most versatile, whether it was heel, face, tag. Uh, his charisma was off the charts. His mic skills were great. And could just do just do everything, uh, again, across all promotions. So to me, like, if you're taking out longevity in the business, it's, it's Eddie Guerrero. If you're talking full career, just like who had the best career of this, it's Chris Jericho. I think Angle, to me, is just behind Eddie. Like, I know Angle is not everyone's cup of tea with the go-go style and all that, but he's my one of my personal all-time favorites. Like, I, I love his stuff. So, to me, it's like him or Guerrero are close. And this isn't just like an anti-Benoit thing. I just think he lacks uh, a little bit in the charisma and mic skill stuff that you mentioned earlier, right? Obviously, if you're talking pure wrestling and that's it... He may be the best of the four as well. So I, I think 
all these four guys are all timers in the ring and they all have their pluses and minuses and they all have spots where they're number one and spots where they're number four. So I guess the cheap way out is to say, regardless of if you're talking best at the peak, just one match, who's the best of all these things that would draw? Like, I think it's Eddie. If you're saying best career with all those things, it's Jericho, just because of the, the broadness of the career. When you factor in all the times he reinvented himself, plus what he did for AEW, putting it on, helping put it on the map. And, you know, however you feel about him now at this point on AEW, like, you can't argue that him signing there didn't help gather them the notoriety and big name that they needed when they were first launching. So I think his AEW legacy is going to add a lot to his overall legacy as well. Uh, that was a really good question, and I have a lot of other good ones, but some of these are really in-depth, and uh, I think we talked about a lot of in-depth ones already here. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I should do one more. I feel like I should do one more for you. Let's see. All right, how do you feel about the current belts? Do you think the belt should be occasionally changed... Or should the design be kept the same? That's Kevin Tucker. Uh, I don't know. I mean, no belt design these days like really stick out to me. And I, maybe it's just nostalgia. Maybe it's just as a kid you care more about these like when you're a child. But like, if you think about the most infamous belt designs, the ones everyone remembers, it's just from that peak era of wrestling, right? It's the legacy Intercontinental title that Bret Hart wore, Mr. Perfect War and Ultimate Warrior War, right? With the different straps colors that change that look the world title the winged eagle right the most infamous to me wrestling title belt on the dirty f side uh even even the stone cold steve austin era world title kind of with the big globe is is super memorable and then of course the tag team titles in dirty f and the big gold belt like so to me those are in wcw so to me those are all the best titles like of the major promotions they were they stand out they're memorable you knew what they looked like uh, they look good on their champions. And then just as years went on, just I, I feel like things just got out of control a little bit. Uh, I know the spinner belt caught a lot of hate, but like at least we had a run where that was the title. And again, it looked like a title. So once you get the spinner part out and it was just kind of steadied inside there with the kind of crystallized, like that looked to me like a grandiose world title. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't think I'd change them often. But I would if they suck, right? Like, I wouldn't stick with a shit design just to not change it. So, to me, the titles I mentioned will always be the titles, those classic uh, looks. And again, I don't know. I don't know if it's nostalgia or if those were really the best. But to me, uh, those are the goats of all time, as the saying goes. And that'll do it for me. Hopefully, everyone enjoyed listening to this. I really enjoy doing it once a month. Be sure to reach out on social to submit a question. Love talking to you love talking about the questions you ask me and the interaction and like i said just check out the facebook page north south connection leave a rating and review we'll talk to you next month here on the mailbag
perfect. You might wanna take a flick, 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 flick.